Well, my name is, is Ben. I'm one of the pastors here at New Life, and it's my privilege to share God's word with you as we continue into our sermon series called Church People. Now, as we begin this morning, I want to ask you a question. It's actually a question based on a survey that was recently done in America where 73% of people said this was the number one stressor in their life. Do you have an idea of what that number one stressor might be? Now, if you're thinking right now in our modern era, like with what's going on, yeah, we're pretty sure what we think we we know it would be, right? It's got to be COVID. But the answer is, it's not COVID. In fact, it has nothing to do with healthcare. It's not the, the lack of healthcare or the strain on the healthcare system or, or the cost of healthcare rates. It's, it's none of that. In fact, it has nothing to do with even immigration or war or racial or political unrest. That's not the number one stressor for people. It has nothing to do with their workplace environment. It has nothing to do with relationships. When 73% of Americans were surveyed recently, They said the number one stressor that they have is money. Money is their number one stressor. And for some of you, you can relate, right? You don't seem to have enough and you're waiting for that paycheck and there's more bills coming in than paychecks and it just creates a lot of stress on your life. Now in correlation, this should be pretty easy and self-evident, but what do you think is the number one fight that married couples have? What do you think that number one fight that, that, that they have is over? Money, right? It's about money. Are we making enough? Do we need to work more to get more? Do you need to get a job? I've already got a job. You're spending money this way. I don't really like how you're spending money, right? And we get into these tiffs about the number one stressor in our lives, and this creates tension in our relationships, especially in our mo- most precious relationship, that relationship with our spouse, which should come as no shock, Right? Because when we get married, what happens? We take two unique individuals with different values on how to spend money. We bring them together. We unite them as one. And then we typically pool our resources together. We try to sit down and find common ground on how to spend our money without a tiebreaker. That's complicated, isn't it? And we get into all sorts of fights about what we're buying or what they're buying, right? Because what I value isn't the same as what my wife values. And so if I go buy it, I think this is a great deal. And she's thinking, why would you bring that into our house? And the same thing is true about her, right? She buys something and she brings it home or typically arrives by Amazon package. I open it up because I get home or whatever. I'm like, what is this? How much money did we spend on this? It better have been negative $5, right? It better have been free because we value money differently and it creates tension about how we see the use of our money. Well, today, as we continue this series, we're actually going to look at a church who's dealing with the stress of money. A stress, I think, a a lot of us, we we can relate to this, right? This is a major stressor in our lives. So when Jesus is talking to this church and they're dealing with the stress of money, what do you think he's going to say to them? Right, he can say anything he wants, right? He's talking to a church. What would he say when it comes to money? Do you think he would say something like this? Maybe you, you talk too much about money. Or maybe you don't talk enough about money. Or maybe you need to talk more about the tithe and, and offering and things like that. Or maybe you need to be more generous. Maybe he'd say that to them. He'd give them that feedback. Or maybe he'd talk to the individuals. 
And you say, you know what? You just need to work harder, right? If you don't have the money, you just gotta, you gotta work harder. You gotta get that second job. And if your wife's not working, your husband's not working, just like, you know, get them out the door so they get a job too. And that will, it will solve that. Or, or maybe he's thinking, you know what? You've got plenty of money and you're working plenty hard, but, but your budget, well, it's just a mess, right? You're spending more than you're making. And what do you think is gonna happen? Of course, that's gonna stress you out. You just gotta get that under control. Or maybe he would say, something else. Maybe he would say, well, you just own too much stuff, right? Sell everything you have and pay off that debt and then follow the Dave Ramsey baby steps and then you will be a millionaire and you will not have to stress ever again. Or maybe he would say this, I can see into your wallet and I see you have $2 in there. And with that $2, you can make your way up to Casey's and you can buy a Powerball ticket and who knows what's going to happen. Right? Maybe you win, and you won't have to worry about money then for the rest of your life. In fact, you can do that every day of every month and $60 and $720 a year and just keep repeating that, and sooner or later, you will have it, and you'll never have to stress again. What will Jesus say? Now, I can tell you he's not going to say the last one. I'm sure you figured that out already. But what's shocking is he doesn't say the other stuff either. Even though the Bible is filled with lessons about being generous, and, and offering back to God what he has first offered us and to, to work hard and to provide and to be smart with our money and save and all those things, this actually isn't what he says to this church. This is what he says instead. He starts out by saying, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna, right, these are the words of the first and the last who is dead and came to life. Now, if you were here last week when we started this series, you're going to know that what we're doing is, is for the next seven weeks, well, one week starting last week, so six more weeks, we are looking at seven different churches in the book of Revelation. These are real churches that Jesus is really talking to from heaven. So what's happened is he's, he's died on the cross, he's come back to life, he's ascended to heaven, and he's speaking to John to speak to these churches and giving them his feedback of what they're doing well and what they need to do better at. Now, if you were here last week, I'm glad you were here. It was kind of a, a miserable day, and so I know probably a lot of you were joining us online, and that's perfectly fine. If you missed out for some reason, you can always go back and listen to the sermon on our website and, and catch up, but here's kind of a snapshot of what happened. We started with our first church, which, which was a church in the city of Ephesus, now, Ephesus was a very prosperous town. It was right on the coast, so it was a seaport. There was a lot of trade and, and stuff that was going on there. It was a city that was doing really well. It was about a quarter of a million people. So Paul comes into this city, and he plants a church. The Apostle Paul was the greatest missionary the world has ever seen. He'd plant churches all around the area, and he would hand off that leadership. So he hands off this leadership to John, and it's when John gets this letter to speak to this church. And Jesus said to that church, here's what I see. You work really hard, you don't give up, and you know your Bible really well. Those are pretty good things to receive feedback, right? That sounds good so far. But then Jesus says something that disrupts the whole conversation. He says, but there's a problem. You've lost your first love. In other words, your core motivation of why you're doing these things isn't pure, right? It's not motivated by the ultimate act of love, Jesus Christ, 
right? The, the, the thing that we are called to do as Christians, to do the loving act or proclaiming Christ's loving act, right? Your, your, your priorities are not fixed on this, this core value. And so he says, you've got to fix this. Now, as we look through church history, we see that this church listened and changed and course corrected. It was a beautiful thing. They were a church that was known for their love, that they held on to this core value and everything they did was motivated by love from that point on. Now, as we move up the coast, we see another church very close to this church, very close to Ephesus. It's just north of Ephesus. It's also on the coastline. So it's another seaport, a lot of area for trade. And you would think that if Jesus was going to talk to the church in Ephesus, that the conversation he'd have with Ephesus would sound very similar to the church in Smyrna, right? Because after all, they're regionally very close. They have Jesus in common. So they're probably struggling with the same things. But the answer is, that's not true. Which really shouldn't be that surprising to us, right? Because we know, even in our town, there can be a church in the same community, on the same block, right next to each other, but they'll be dealing with different issues within that church setting. Which, of course, isn't surprising because who's in that church? Unique, different people. Right? Every church is made up of different types of people. Some are older, some are younger, some are richer, some are poor. There's different pastors, there's different leadership teams. And so they're all going to naturally have these different issues that they're dealing with. Now, to understand the tension that Smyrna is dealing with and the, and the difficulties that they're experiencing, you have to understand this city. Now, to understand the city, you have to understand the demographics of the city. So first of all, the primary population was made up of people that worshipped Caesar. Now, when I say worship Caesar, I, I don't mean like they honored the government and they were faithful to the government and they kind of celebrated their leader and isn't he a great guy and he's someone to emulate. I mean, they worshipped Caesar as a god. And in this city, this was very, very serious. They actually had two temples to worship Caesar which was very odd because this was the only city in the whole world that had two temples in honor of Caesar, which means there were so many people worshiping Caesar in one temple that they didn't have room for them and they had to make another temple. This gives you an idea of how serious this town was taking their Caesar worship and how dedicated they were. But if you think about it, it kind of makes sense because they were prosperous. And so they were thinking what sometimes we think, right? If we're being blessed in our life financially or things are going well or we're healthy or, or fill in the blank, we just feel blessed. Sometimes we naturally think, well, if I'm blessed, then God is blessing me because I'm doing exactly what he wants me to do. And so these people, you can see where they would think this way. If they were prospering and, and they were being blessed and this city was blessed, they were, they were known for their science and their art and their medicine. In fact, they had the largest theater in the world at this point in time. I mean, it was a big, big deal. If they were being blessed in that way, they were probably thinking, well, we worship Caesar, we honor Caesar, and this is, this is the result. So you can see why it was so popular. So this was the majority of the population. Now, there was another group that was also pretty big, and that was the Jewish people. Jewish people are the people waiting on the awaited Messiah. But when Jesus showed up, they didn't think that he was the Messiah, and they rejected him. 
So this is the majority of the populations made up of these two groups and then tucked inside of that population is this Christian church. And as you can already see, this would be challenging because they don't agree with the Caesar worshipers and they're not in agreement with the Messiah on who the Messiah is with the Jewish worshipers, which means they are not in the in crowd. And this was creating some tension for them, which we're about to get into in a second. But this is the church that Jesus is talking to. Jesus, the one who is the first and the last, the one who died and came back to life. And so this is what he says next. He says, I know your affliction and your poverty, even though you are rich. So he starts off by saying these words, I know. And and this is going to happen all throughout the series. You're going to see him say this over and over and over again. He's going to say, I know, I know, I know. And these words are so comforting. Because what Jesus is saying here is, I see you and I notice you. I'm concerned about you. Right? I, I feel feeling. I know what's going on in your life. And to these people, this would be incredibly comfortable, just like it should be for us. Because what are they thinking? They're thinking, I don't think you even know what's going on in our world. I don't think you know what's going on in our space. I don't think you know the pain that I feel and the difficulties that we're experiencing. God, where are you and and do you even notice us? Which his response is, I do. I do. I see the affliction and I see the poverty. These people were going through it. First of all, they were afflicted, which means there was some outside pressure that was causing some tension in their life. Now, what was this affliction from? Well, it was from being the outsiders in this group of a bunch of people who are worshiping Caesar or people who are rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. And this created natural tension, right? They did not belong. They were isolated. This is creating problems for them. In fact, there was persecution breaking out. Now, just to give you an extent of how heavy that persecution was, in this town, in 155 AD, which would be about 80 years after this letter was written, there was a guy named Polycarp, and you might have heard of that name before, but Polycarp was an apostolic father trained by the disciple John to help lead the church after the fact. He became the bishop in this area, and this town killed him off. Now, think about the implications of that. This was a major Christian leader, well-respected, well-known, right? People knew the name, and they killed him for the simple sin of believing in Jesus Christ and being a follower of Jesus. It shows you that this town was not really that concerned about Christians' well-being, nor were they concerned about what they would do to Christians nor the ramifications of what would happen if they did something to a Christian, right? This shows you how, how lowly these people were and the affliction that they were experiencing. Now, another part that we see that their life is struggling is that they are poor, right? They're poor. Now, why were the people poor? Well, it wasn't based on work ethic. You see, what was happening in this church was that poor people were naturally receptive to the gospel. And it makes sense, right? If you have nothing else in your hands, And you hear the good news of Jesus Christ, which is available to rich and poor, black and white, male and female, young and old. That's something to cling on to. Because what's the message of Jesus Christ? That I have good news. That the king is here. The king is going to forgive your sins. The king is going to welcome you into his family and into his kingdom. And in the end, you get to live with him in a place where there's no pain and there's no sorrow. 
and you will have everything because you are part of the king's family. For people who have nothing and their hands are empty, you can see how they would cling on to that so quickly and hold on to Jesus so quickly. In fact, what does Jesus say in one of his parables? He says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to go to the kingdom of heaven. Now, why would he say that? Not because rich people can't go to heaven. That's not the point. He's saying that when your hands are full, you don't have a lot of room to receive. Right? When your hands are clinging on to all the things that you own and and your money and your property and all the stuff and and you just hold on to it like this, it's really hard for you to let go of those things to bring Christ into your life. And so because of this, the poor people who had nothing, they were flocking to the church. Now, there was another category of people, too, that were in this church who weren't poor yet or were in the process of becoming poor or had become poor. You see, what happened is the people, they would have businesses and and they were doing well. Maybe they had some resources. But when they became a Christian, right, when they became a follower of Jesus Christ, they took on that label. They were baptized into the faith. Well, now they were Christians, which what happened? what, What did that mean in this community? is that they were outsiders now, right? They used to be in the in-group, but now they were in the, the group that was not in the in-group, and they were with the Christians. And you who own businesses or work in businesses, you know how this works, right? It's all about relationships. It's all about networking. And you can't make a sale to people if you are not in their in-group. And you're not going to make a sale if they have shoved you out of their group. And so these people, even if they had resources, when they became a Christian— those relationships, they dried up. Well, who were they surrounded by? All the poor people who were clinging on to Jesus because they had nothing else, which means they couldn't buy the product from them. And so eventually, you would just become poor as a result of clinging on to Jesus Christ. Now, despite all this difficulty that these people are going through, Jesus makes this comment to them that they are rich, which won't make sense until the very end, but we'll get to that. But he continues, He goes on to say, I know the slander on the part of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now he goes on with these words, I know, right? I I know what's going on in your life. In fact, he gets really specific here. That not only do I know like the general reality of your life, like I'm looking at you, I kind of get a picture of your life. No, I, I know all the details of your life. All the pain, all the sorrow, all the difficulty. I I know everything in your life. Plus, I actually know why you're experiencing the difficulties in your life that you're experiencing. Which for these people who were afflicted and poor in this church in Smyrna, he says, the reason you're experiencing this, I know why you're experiencing this. You might not understand it, or maybe you do, but, but it's the slander of the Jewish people. Now, I know off the cuff this sounds very anti-Semitic, so let me just clear, clear this up really quickly. What he's not saying is, just because these people are genetically Jewish, they are evil. What he's saying is, there's a group of people who when Jesus came as the Messiah, they rejected him as the Messiah. And because of that, this is creating tension, right? Because there's a group of people who say, Jesus is the Messiah. And there's a group of people who are saying, Jesus is not the Messiah, and they have very countering worldviews that they're trying to communicate to people. And this was creating some real 
issues. In fact, it was, it was combative. And if you think about the story of Jesus Christ, this is exactly what happened. Because when Jesus came, what did he say? I am the Messiah. And this got the Jewish leaders very worked up. In fact, so worked up, they plotted to kill him. But they couldn't kill him because they didn't have political power at the time. So they go to the Romans and they say, hey, this guy is saying he's the Messiah. And the Romans are thinking, we don't really care. But they say, but I don't know what that means. If he's saying he's the Messiah, it means that he is a king. And that would catch their attention. Because a king, well, a king required a throne. And that throne was filled by the Romans, right? They ruled the whole known world at this point in time. They were in charge and no one was going to challenge that. And there was one place where people ended up if they challenged Rome. And that was on a cross. You see, just like Jesus got put on the cross because of people being upset about him claiming to be Messiah, this was the same exact thing that was happening. They were trying to stop the mission of Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you right now, if you want to get Jesus upset, try to slow down or stop his mission. In fact, it doesn't matter if you're a believer or not a believer. If you try to get in the way of Christ's mission, he's not going to be very pleased. In fact, think about that time when he was talking with Peter, and Peter was trying to stop him from going to the cross. He's like, no, you're not going to go to the cross. And what did Jesus say to him? He said, get behind me, Satan. In this context, there's these Jewish people who are trying to slow down or stop the mission of Jesus Christ, and he calls them a synagogue of Satan. Because Jesus is not going to let anything stop his mission, even us. Well, he continues. Do not fear for what you're about to suffer. Beware the devil is about to throw some of you into prison so that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have affliction. So this poor church, right? What have they experienced so far? They're afflicted, they're persecuted, they're poor, right? They're going through it. And Jesus says, oh, by the way, it's about to get worse. And they're thinking, how can it possibly get worse? He says, you're going to experience prison. You're going to get tossed into prison and you're going to be there for 10 days. Now, when you think of prison, I, I tend to go to like in the movies, right? You're, there's a, there's a, a bathroom in there. There's a, a single twin bed in there and you're kind of isolated. And that's kind of the worst of it. You get fed three times a day. The prisons in this day are not like the prisons we think of right? Food would be scarce unless someone provided it. Often you would get beat up or hurt. It would be an awful situation. So the only promise they have is that it's only going to be for 10 days, which just means it's going to be a short period of time and you can make it. But still, as they're receiving this news, you know what they're thinking. It's what I would be thinking is, but why? Why would you allow this to happen? Right, God, we've experienced enough. Why would you allow us to experience even more pain and even more suffering? Don't you love us? I'm sure they ask that question. But if they ask that question, or if I ask that question, we're asking the wrong question. See, the question when times get difficult is not, why is this happening to me? The question is, God, what are you going to do in this moment to advance your mission? In fact, we see in the life of Paul, Paul gets tossed into prison much like this. 
And, he, and he's in prison. Instead of saying, woe is me, and I'm so angry, I'm going to sit in the corner and just wait out my, my time and finally get released, he goes on the offensive. He says, God, how, how do you want me to, to use this moment for your mission? So he begins to share his faith with the jailer. And the jailer becomes a Christian. And then the jailer drags Paul over to meet his family, and his whole family gets baptized into Jesus Christ. Now, we don't know the rest of the story, but I've got to imagine that generation after generation after generation of this jailer's family is welcomed into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Simply because Paul, in this moment, when he should have said, or I would have said, I feel really bad for myself, why would you do this? He says, instead, or he thinks, God, what do you want to do in this moment for your mission and, and for your glory? Well, Jesus closes with this. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Whoever conquers will not be harmed by the second death. Now remember at the very beginning, when Jesus takes stock of this church, he says, I know you are afflicted, and also you are poor, but you are rich. This is why he, he says this. Because he knows that those who have empty hands and cling on to Jesus will experience something far more valuable than anything they can hold on to in this life. Because those who cling on to the king and Christ's forgiveness, they're ushered into his kingdom in a place where anything that we could ever imagine will be there and things we can't imagine will be there. And we're promised there's no pain and there's no sorrow and all that affliction and, and poverty and anything that we could experience in life, this life will be a distant memory because of what we have to gain in Jesus Christ. So, what are you stressed about right now? What's bothering you right now? Maybe it's finances, like 73% of Americans, right? You, you can't get enough money into your bank account. You're not getting paid maybe what you're worth, or maybe you can't get a job, or, or maybe the job you have, well, when the bills come in, they're actually much more than what your check is, and you're running into issues there. Or maybe you're having tension with your spouse because she's buying stuff that you don't agree with, and you can't figure out how to remedy that. Or maybe it's physical. Maybe you got a call from a doctor that you weren't expecting and now you would give up all the money in the world just to be healthy. And that's the stress. Or maybe it's interpersonal, right? Your relationship with your, your husband is not going well. Or your kids are now in high school and when they were four, it was easy, right? They loved mommy and daddy, but now it kind of feels like the opposite and that's very challenging for you. Or school is tough or work is tough. Whatever it is, what is stressing you out? And what's your response to it? See, if you're like me, and it's very natural, it's very normal, when, when life stinks, when life is hard, we begin to ask questions like this, God, why me? Why am I experiencing this? Especially if we really feel like we're doing our best when it comes to our faith, right? God, why me? I'm in church every Sunday. I'm faithfully serving you. I volunteer. Like, I, I give. Like, I'm checking all the boxes, but... And that means I should be insulated from this stuff, right? So, so why am I experiencing this? The problem is, when we ask the question, why me, or why am I experiencing this? We're asking the wrong question. 
See, the question we should be asking instead is, God, how are you going to use this moment for your mission? How are you going to use this moment for your mission? God, how are you going to use this stress in my life for your mission? How are you going to use this money issue in my life for your mission? How are you going to use this health scare in my life for your mission? How, how are you going to use this, this relationship dynamic that's not quite going the way that, that I want it to go, Lord? How are you going to use it for your mission? How are you going to use this issue within my work environment or my school environment or my team I play on, Lord? How are you going to use it for your mission? You see, when we ask, God, how are you going to use this for your mission? We have the opportunity to sit back in the stress of this life and just marvel to see what he's really going to do. You see, when we change the questions we ask, we change how we experience stress. Let's pray.